one of the doctors, uh, one of the fellows comes in and she's like, we have a surprise for you. And I'm, I swear to God, I'm thinking macaroni and cheese. And, and she tells me, she's like, we found you a heart. And I'm like, what? And sure enough, after the tears and the hugs and Angie's like, what happened? And I told her and she literally had to pull over. Like she was on her way. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I have the one and only Don Eric Black, who was a referral from a very good friend of mine who literally, I think, might be his fan club president, second to his wife. <laughs> Don Eric is a entrepreneur, a drummer, a BMX racer, which he said if his wife heard that, she'd be like, roll her eyes. <laughs> and he's a life lover. And he is, his favorite quote is, I will not die on the couch. Welcome, Don Eric. Thank you so much, Sarah. So good to be here. Um, yeah, just excited and glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to share my story. I'm so happy that you said yes. All right. So with every guest, we start out with where'd you grow up? Tell us about your family. Where did you live? <sighs> Grew up in Dayton, Ohio, uh, born and raised there. Um, spent my formative years right in, in North Dayton. I uh, went to a little bitty private school, uh, in South Dayton and, um, just enjoyed life. Uh, I have one sister, uh, who is my younger sister. She thinks she's my older sister. Uh, so you know how that <laughs> goes. What is, so if you grew up in North Dayton, but you went to a little school in South Dayton, cause mm -hmm. I, most people aren't going to know the Dayton area. Yeah, Why so was that? So we, uh, I was raised Adventist and, uh, Spring Valley Academy okay. is an Adventist school. So Yes. Uh, my parents wanted me to have a Christian education, so they schlepped me 40 minutes from home from first grade to 12th grade. I'm glad Spring Valley didn't build a college because my mom <laughs> would have probably made me go there. Um, but yeah, so uh, went to a very small conservative private school and um, graduated and, and went to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for college. And where'd you go? I went to Washington Adventist University, which was another okay. really small Adventist private school. Um, yes. about 2000 kids, give or take, uh, at that time and, uh, studied business and upon graduation, uh, came back to Dayton to help run the family business. So me and my dad own a, uh, own a community newspaper, uh, it's called the Dayton weekly news. So it's geared yes. towards the African-American community. So we provide news and information on a weekly basis, cover all the, the normal news bases and, um, uh, my dad passed away uh, in 2020, uh, so I've been uh, doing the business ever since then, um, and uh, just really glad to to have had an opportunity to give something back to my community, and hopefully it's valued and, and we'll continue to do what we do. Yeah. Okay, I have questions. <laughs> so is Adventist the same as Seventh Day? Yes, Okay. Yes. And tell me what that, tell me about that theology or that religion. I am, I like love religions. Really? So the Adventist yes. religion is, 
is relatively conservative. It's a, it's a modest religion. Uh, we have a very strong health message in terms of eating healthy. Uh, the, the basis of, of its doctrine is, is, is modesty, conservatism. Don't wear a lot of jewelry, if any at all. Um, we go to church. We worship on Saturday as opposed to Sunday. Wow. Uh, so for, um, because it was interpreted in the Bible that, you know, um, that God took six, you know, five, six days to build the earth starting, you know, on Sunday and rested on the Sabbath day, which we consider the seventh day of the week, which was Saturday. So we rest on Saturday. So from 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 sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is kind of our our rest where we go to church and reflect and things like that, which is rough for a teenage kid trying to have fun, yeah. you know, trying and to go. Is to that so that's same as Judaism because they do sundown Friday night. Right. Very similar uh, in terms of, of when we when we rest. OK. And. It's Christian, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So believe in Jesus, right? Yes. Yes. Any other similarities or differences to other Christian religions? Uh, no, not really. We we tend to take the Bible at its face value. There isn't a whole lot that we add or detract from the Bible. We have prophets as well. Ellen G. White was one of our major prophets who wrote um, a series of books, kind of doctrines uh, for the Adventist okay. church. Uh, but it, it, it's, you know, some people have described it uh, in the past as, as cult-like. Um, it is pretty conservative. It can be sort of a bubble religion, but I would I would steer clear of calling it a cult. But you have fringe yeah. groups in every yeah. religion. So, you know, yeah. Do you still practice? Not really. Not really. Um, whenever my parents would, would ask me to go to church, I would go to church. Uh, I still sure. believe in its doctrine. Um and I'll be honest with you, sometimes the politics of religion can turn me off. Yeah. Uh, and I found myself being jaded by just that. And I, I believe in God. I'm a prayer. I'm here as a result of prayer. Um, I, I'm starting to adopt the, the, the mentality that I don't have to go to a church and funnel my, my, my dedication through a human being. Um, so I have my own relationship with Christ. And uh, I just, I go directly to him, you know, I <laughs> as that. I have been. Yeah, I can dig, I can super dig that too. Yeah. I'm kind of in line with that. And I, and I don't knock people that go. I was just to church this sure. past Sabbath um, and I love going. Uh, I just, I just don't go as often as I should maybe, or, would, or my mom would like me to, but at the end <laughs> of the day, you know, yeah. All right. So growing up, Living in Dayton, did your dad start the newspaper? He did, yeah. And actually, <clears throat> he started the paper right after I graduated from college. So my dad has always been an entrepreneur. So that's all I knew. Um, every day I saw him get up and go to work for himself. And so I knew at an early age I was going to sell something to somebody. I just didn't know what. And mm-hmm. I loved Washington, D.C. Uh, and I remember graduation weekend when he came to my apartment and we're sitting there talking and he kind of said to me, Hey, I'm thinking about this new venture. I know you've got things figured out here in DC, but if you want to come back to Dayton and we work on this thing together, I'll make a place for you. And 
I thought about it for about 30 seconds and I said, I'm going to work my butt off for somebody. It might as well be family. Him and my mom worked very hard to provide me with a great life. And so I made the decision to come back. And at times I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) But uh, it, it, it worked out. It worked out. It gave me an opportunity to really develop a, an awesome relationship with my dad. And I always joke that, you know, working with family is a trip. You know, how can he fire me at two o'clock and then expect me to come over and cut the grass at five o'clock? You know, you coming over for dinner? No, I'm not coming over for dinner. You know, so but we had a we had a great relationship. <laughs> great. And, and and I'm glad that I was able to come back and, and be a part That's of something. a gift. It really was. He was a gift. You know, he was a gift. Yeah. I also love that you that that's your business because I'm guessing there probably aren't a lot of African American newspapers out there and it's so important for the community. You are you are spot on. There are a lot fewer now than there were in the the 90s when we started. Uh, and the reason that we started is because we felt like the city of Dayton, which wasn't uncommon in a lot of municipalities throughout the country, mm-hmm. weren't getting a, a, a fair and accurate view of itself, meaning the African-American community. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that might happen in our community uh, might not even make it into the Dayton Daily or on TV right. or on the radio. And we knew it was good information or positive information, but it wasn't being shared. So it it makes you develop uh there wasn't an accurate view of who we were as a community. So my dad has always had that. If not me, who, if not now, when type of mentality. So he was like, we're going to start this paper. And um, that's what we did. You know, uh, we started it in, in our first issue uh, hit the streets in November of 1993. And, and we're still pumping them out today. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. And since then, so some of them have closed, you said. How did mm-hmm. you all weather that storm? Oh, it, you know, that's that's a really interesting question because my father is the original self-made man. Mm-hmm. He's never really taken no for an answer. If he's passionate about something, he would just do it. And he didn't need directions, he didn't need guidance he would just do it. And he just had that lower intestinal fortitude that made him grind through. And I got a little bit of that too. I was just going to say, once you share your story, people are going to hear that you have that too. Yeah. And so he just said, I'm going to do this. It's important. My dad was very, very dedicated to his community to a fault almost. Really? Like how? Just having opportunities to do bigger and better things outside of the city of Dayton and never really taking advantage of those things because he wanted to be dedicated working in a lot of environments where he wasn't paid like he should have been paid, but he was dedicated. Even with the newspaper, I I actually left the paper in 2010 uh, to pursue some other opportunities, but was still, you know, I still had a dotted line to the paper. And there were many times when I was like, why are you doing this? You could retire and, and right. go do something else. And he was like, we have a responsibility to the community to do this. Yes. And <clears throat> here I am, you know, I took over in 
2019. And here I am still saying that very same thing. I don't derive a lot of my income from the newspaper and I can probably close it down tomorrow and not miss a beat. But I do feel like I have a responsibility. My staff is dedicated, having very dedicated staff members around. And, and I tell them every, every meeting, Hey, as long as we can pay the bills, I'll keep doing it, you know? And yeah, that's just the way he was. Last week I interviewed uh, this women's panel and the topic was brave noise, being Mm -hmm. courageous with your voice. And one of the women said, it's really about commitment. So it's not just speaking up or standing up for something you believe in or believing in yourself more. It's having the commitment, that intestinal fortitude to keep going with it. And that was him. I mean, <clears throat> commitment like you would not believe. And I admired him for that. And, and you know, everybody measures success in, in different ways. But I, I really believe that my dad was one of the most successful people that I know because he would he never faltered. And it wasn't always easy, you know, but yeah. he just kept grinding. There were times when we would be sitting there in the office on Friday at five o'clock and He'd be like, man, we got another one out. I'm like, yeah, we did, you know. And How how do you measure success? In my world, I measure success. I usually measure my day on the way home. And I am driving and I say to myself, were you impactful? Did you learn something? Did you teach something? And if I can answer yes to those to those questions and it's a successful day. All my days aren't successful, but more times than not, I have the opportunity to be proud of what I did. And at the end of the day, that's all we want to be is proud of the work that we put out there. And I've been very lucky to, to have been given opportunities where I wasn't just going to do a job for a paycheck. I could really dig in and be passionate about what I do. And right now, um, working uh, with the city of Dayton, uh, working in contract compliance, where my job is primarily to work with small businesses to help them get work with the city and and making sure that the dollars that are spent on construction projects are equitable. I mean, for a guy like myself, I can't ask for more because it gives me direct contact, not only with the, 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 the empire that is the city, but holding them accountable. And then on the on the assistant on the technical assistance side, being able to work with small businesses to show them where the opportunities are, what they need to do, what criteria they need to meet, so that they can go out here and make money and grow and be sustainable and and hire people and 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 put food on the table. I love that kind of stuff, you know. So being able to so do that is just great. How does organ donation? fit into your story? Can you take us down that path? Well, that goes back to 2006, actually. So my dad was a diabetic. And I remember being at dinner once with him and my mother, and they had went to an appointment. And he comes back, he's like, yeah, he had been on peritoneal dialysis because his kidney was going bad. And they had said, he said, yeah, they told me I'm probably going to need a transplant. And I was like, and this was probably 2004. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, would you consider donating a kidney? And I was like, sure, whatever you need, Pop. 
And I literally remember saying that did not miss a beat. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And for a year and a half, we never talked about it. And, you know, another appointment came up and they said, yeah, it's time. And I said, all right, well, let's, what do we need to do? So I got tested and went through everything. And they were like, you're a match. And I was able to, to donate a kidney to him in 2006, you know, that, that was life-saving, you know, for him and me. You yeah. Know. Cause, well, cause he lived until 2020. Yeah. So he had it for, you know, he, he was, it was very selfish of me because I wanted him to stay around and, and I had him for an additional yeah. 14 years and we were able to build a business and, and have many experiences together. And so that was my first interaction with, with organ donation. Okay. And when that happens, are you, are you scared? No, not even a little bit. What? I'm a, I'm a weird dude. Um, I don't really worry about things I can't control. That's called stress. And I don't really get stressed about stuff. I did my research. Uh, I have a really good relationship with the man upstairs. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, if, if you want this to happen, put me in the right direction. I'll do my part. You do your part. And I never worried about it. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. I, it's unbelievable. So I never worried about it. We had a textbook transplant although he did get sick uh and and was was out for a couple years so i ran the business from like 2006 to 2008 because he was he had stenosis of the spine which we realized uh but his kidney was great uh but he did get sick and so uh once again he was able to come back from that and and everything was good you know so but yeah, uh, it wasn't about being scared. It was just about trusting the process and realizing that, you know, the man upstairs has got me and I really don't worry about anything. I know Your it sounds weird. Really, no, it doesn't. No, no. It sounds amazing. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. And keep going down that. So I, I get the transplant, everything goes fine. I go back to my normal life. And in 2009, uh, in the fall of 2009, about a, a, about a week or two before Thanksgiving, I was watching TV and I felt like I was a little short of breath and I couldn't shake it. You know how you can't catch your breath. Yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't know what was wrong. I felt really full and I was like, man, I feel like I ate all of Thanksgiving, you know, and, you know, just was a little bit perplexed by it. Um, and I was like, this isn't right. You know, and I, had, I said something to my wife and she was like, well, why don't you just try and relax, just come to bed. And if you're still feeling weird in the morning, we'll go to the hospital. So I laid down for a bit, but I still just wasn't feeling right. And I'm not a hypochondriac by any means. Right. I'm one of those drink more water, put some dirt on it. You'll be okay. And yeah, I, um, I got back up and I was kind of pacing, uh, in our, in our downstairs area. And she comes to the top stairs. She's like, are you all right? And I said, I just don't feel right. And she knows me. And she was like, we need to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I was in there for a week 
and they told me that I would I had congestive heart failure. And they said what had happened was my mitral valve had had been compromised to the point where fluid was backing up into my lungs. And the doctor was like, if you had been able to get to sleep, you could have suffocated. Died. Yeah. They were like 60% full of fluid. Oh my God. Yeah, it was crazy. So so we went um and I was in the hospital for a week and they said, go home for Thanksgiving and try to enjoy a sodium free Thanksgiving, which is an oxymoron. Enjoying <laughs> and sodium free just don't go together. So it was the worst Thanksgiving ever. Yeah. My mother made this wonderful meal for all of our family and relatives and then made me the same thing with no salt. And it was just terrible. terrible. I don't know if you've ever had stuffing or dressing with no salt, but it is not good. No, I have not. I don't ever want to. Yeah, please don't. So, um, so in December I got the open heart surgery and they, they put in a, a pig valve and that was, I got that and I, they put in a pacemaker. Okay. Because they were like, you, you're you're in this in this space where if your heart stops, you'll you'll die, like yeah. instantly. So they gave Insane. me a pacemaker, and what that would do is keep my heart in rhythm if it went out of rhythm. So for the next four years, that was my new life. That's when I started racing BMX again, um, nice. and uh, just new normal. Couldn't quite do everything I used to be able to do. That's what I was going to ask you. You could or you couldn't. I, I couldn't, I could still be active. I still worked out, um, but it was just in a different way, you know, and I knew my limitations. So I just uh, made the adjustments basically. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I still felt pretty lucky. And, and that's when I got involved with the American Heart Association um, and started doing a lot of volunteer work, started raising money, you know, and being an advocate and, formed some amazing relationships with people who really gave me an opportunity to kind of kind of create my own narrative about heart disease and being able to lean into it and and figure out how I could raise money uh, for the organization and had a great time, you know, working with them and everything was, was, was going okay. And uh, had some missteps here and there and, and realized that I was getting a little bit sicker uh, yeah. and I ended up going, uh, in for a checkup and they were like, your heart keeps jumping out of rhythm. Um, if that were to happen like 40 times in a six month period, that's really cause for concern. Well, it happened 400 times with me in six months. So they were like, we need to, we need to really do something about this. So they were going to do what is called an ablation. Mm-hmm. which is a procedure where they go in and they put your heart into VTAC, which is they speed your heart rate up and they, okay. they go in and they, they, they freeze off the, the damaged parts of your heart. Okay. It's an outpatient procedure. At the time I was running a nonprofit organization and I told my, my, uh, my staff, I'm like, Hey, I've had this procedure. I'll be out tomorrow and Friday. See you on Monday. And I go in to the cath lab uh, for this procedure. And I'm joking with everybody, having a good time, just being yeah. myself. And yeah. during the procedure, they put my my heart into this, what they call VTAC rhythm, so they can mm-hmm. identify the bad parts. And I go into what's called the VTAC storm. 
which basically means my heart went crazy and it just stopped. And so I coded right there on the table, which in all honesty, it's the best place to die is in a hospital because you got everybody around you that you need. And it's weird. It's weird for you to say best place to die, you know, like versus best place to code. But it's really <laughs> the same thing. It's the same right? thing. And it's actually the first time I've ever said that, uh, which is a bit morbid, but I'm a jokester. But yeah, I yeah, coded. Yeah. <laughs> I coded right there around all these amazing yeah. professionals. So oh. they ended up. Um, doing CPR on me for like 45 minutes. They shot me 70, 70 times. Stop it. Stop it. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. And they didn't give up. No. And my wife was a director at the hospital and the doctors come out and they're like, here's the situation. This is what we're facing. What do you want us to do? And she's like, everything you can do. And they're like, okay. And they never gave up. And no, I had no, burn no. marks on my chest and my stump, my side where Shut I was up. from the from the paddles. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Now, this is all secondhand knowledge because I wasn't right, right. able to remember any of it. But uh, I woke up like three days later and, yeah. uh, you know, it was just it was it was crazy. So I was in what, what should have been a, an outpatient procedure ended up being 11 days. Oh my and yeah, I left the hospital and we went literally within the next week, we were at Cleveland Clinic. Okay, uh, what did they and, say? Well, <laughs> I'm a hardhead and I go to the clinic and I'm moving yeah. pretty slow at this point. Um, yeah. And within a couple of hours of, of examining me, the cardiologist was like, yeah, you're going to need a heart transplant. And I literally scoffed. I laughed a little bit. I was like, <laughs> that's not going to happen in my head. And he was like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. And we need to start the work up now. No way. And I was like, oh, geez. And so that was in 2013. So for the next two years, I was going yeah. to Cleveland from Dayton once every couple of weeks, you know, monthly to get these checkups and they get, they have this whole protocol that you have to go through uh, to, to get on the list. And what's so funny is that it was evident that I needed a heart transplant, but I wasn't sick enough to get a heart transplant. Yes, yes, yes. So they were like, we want to get you pre-screened. So when you're sick or when you're sicker, we'll already have all that we need. And they didn't lie. Sure enough, I got sicker and sicker and it got to the point where, uh, and that was, I've, I've never really been depressed, but yeah. I was still trying to live my best life. I had signed up for graduate school and I yeah. was running a company that I really loved. I had 23 employees and I remember giving my staff two weeks off at Christmas and I spent the whole the whole time in the office every day, just something said, get your stuff together. And so I would go in every day and work. And the day that, um, the day that I was supposed to start back to work, that everybody was to come back to work, I could barely, like, I could barely move. And I told my wife, I said, just wake me up at noon, you know, and I got into work and I had missed like 30 calls 
and my um, assistant director was there and she was like, dude, what's going on? And I told her and I ended up, I ended up leaving and going into the hospital. They had to drain all this fluid off my, off my body. And that next day I went to Cleveland for a checkup and they were like, they were like, we're going to keep you. No. Did yeah, they, they have like, a heart? No, they just said, you're too sick. We're going to admit you into ICU until you get a heart. Okay. So I literally okay. had to resign to the board from the hospital. It was, I was so depressed because I had worked so hard for this company and yeah, I was just bummed out. And some of those, yeah. I, there are a lot of my employees that I never saw again, you know, and that was, I was in t- I was in constant contact with my board secretary. It got to the point where my wife was like, "You can't call him anymore," and mm-hmm. I was just like, "All right, this is my new normal." I just am in I'm in so in awe that you've said this is my new normal at some really big things that have happened to you, really big. Yeah, it's weird because we tend to think that life can't go on without us, and it yeah. does. And we have yeah. to be able to make those pivots and, and play the cards that are in front of us. And that's all that I could do at the time. I mean, you right. go from running a business and being active to literally in ICU. And my the biggest challenge I had every day was, was shuffling from the bed to the bathroom and then back. And so it was physical and some mental at that point because you said that you started to get depressed. I did. And I, I think I got depressed because I wasn't able to continue to to work. I've been working somewhere since I was 12 years old. I had never been without a job. And right. luckily, having a, a very intuitive bride who was like, we need to plan yeah. for this. I didn't have to worry about anything because we had yes. planned for it because there's nothing worse than not being able to provide for your family. Yeah. Um, but she had just taken a new job. And her boss was like, take all the time you need, start after you guys get through this. So she was up all the time and that was really comforting. And and I tell you, I had so many awesome friends who came to see me. I was never alone. Like mm-hmm. every single day there was somebody popping their head. Like ICU is typically for family, immediate right, family. Right, right. They totally threw the rule out. People were showing up all times of the day at any time. And they stopped asking. They were just like, he's in 2018. And people would just show up and come in and sneak me food. (laughs) How long did you stay in there? I was there for 49 days. Oh, my God. All right. Did you get a heart? I did. I, I got a great heart. I got a great heart on February 26th, 2015, a day before my 45th birthday. Best birthday present ever. Yeah. It was amazing. So I, I know that you're on the, you're on, you're going to have another surgery. I am. So I was thinking that's not the heart. That's not the heart. The heart I got, uh, six years ago. Now, what's funny is that, you know, you get this life-saving procedure and you have to take all these drugs that kind of trick your body into thinking that it's supposed to be there. Well, 
the anti-rejection meds not only save your life, but they, they tear up everything else. So a lot of uh, transplant patients will develop like um, really aggressive skin cancers, which I have, uh, or other organs will be compromised like kidneys. And now mind you, I only have one anyway. Right. So, so yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so um, with all this knowledge, kind of figuring out that at some point I was going to have to have another surgery of some type. You um, knew that. They yeah. tell you that. Yeah, it, it was pretty much a given, you know, and okay. you just hope okay. you can hold on and, and continue to live a great life, knowing full well that at any point in time, something could shut down. Uh, I'm still the luckiest guy I know because it had it could have been so much worse. Um, but uh, can I can I ask you something? Sure. Because I've never asked anybody this question. And if it's too like personal, you can be like, no. When you're faced with the fact that, like, I could maybe not wake up tomorrow, how do you accept that? Oh, um, that's a that's a crazy question. It's not a crazy question. It makes perfect sense because I've I've had people ask that before, um, and, and I kind of go back to my faith. I was yeah. raised in a praying family, yeah, and. I remember being in the hospital and having come from a from a management type position and always wanting to be in control. The hardest thing to do is give up control, you know, and I remember being in the hospital and tapping into, you know, my relationship with God. And I I would always so I would always wind my day around about down about seven o'clock p.m. I'm, I'm shimmering into bed and I'm like, all right, this is where I'll be. And I had this area of the wall that I would always look at and I would pray, you know, and that was kind of my little deity, you know, up there. Yeah. And, yeah. Your and altar. I would have my altar. Yeah. And I would have these these long, elaborate talks, you know, and. I was like. Dude, at, by the by the time it was all over, my prayers were like, look, you promised. So you need to deliver. I'll do my part. You do your part. Good night. And that was it. And that's just <laughs> how it, it became. But the, the answer to your question is, I'll go back to, to something I said earlier. I cannot, I can't worry about those things. Either I'm going to worry about it or I'm going to pray about it. But I can't do both because they cancel each other out. <gasps> okay. That's so good. I'm either going to worry about it or I'm going to pray about it. I can't do both. Can't do both. Nope. How do you, how do you get over? Like, do you ever feel alone? No, because I love me. I'm God. never alone. Okay. You're my hero. You are my hero. So in the last year I got divorced and I feel lonely at times. Understood. And, and I also want to start dating myself so that I'm just as excited to be with myself as I am with anybody else. Absolutely. Nobody knows you like you. And if, and and the reality of it is if you can't be good by yourself, there's no way you're going to be good with somebody else. Guess what I'm doing? What? I'm going to go on vacation with just me. I've done it. And it's great. I called it a walkabout. I caught <gasps> where it was just me, 
my wife went the first time we did it. She went to California. I had always wanted to go visit Minneapolis, Minnesota, and go to Prince's Prince. Mansion, I knew you were going to say Paisley that. Paisley Park. To say that she wasn't really interested, and I was like, "I'm going." And I flew into right. Minneapolis. I bought my tickets. I got a hotel. I watched a Buckeye game at a Buckeye bar and listened to some music and went to, you know, Paisley Park, had a great time all by myself, you know, and I loved it. And she had never traveled by herself and she wanted to go to like um, a spa in Santa Fe or somewhere in California. And she went and then the next year um, I went and sat on a beach in Florida for four days and she went, she had never been to New York. And she went and I I think it was harder for her than me because I really do enjoy. I'm the most introverted extrovert there is. I do. I love people. I love being in the middle of the hustle and bustle. But man, do I appreciate just quiet, introspective time where I can. She'll go out of town and she'll call. What are you doing? I'm like nothing. (laughs) And I'm perfectly happy doing nothing. All right. So where are you today with Oregon needed? So we started, uh, you know, I get regular checkups and they noticed that my creatinine level had continued to get a little bit higher and higher. And and I had a um, an appointment with my nephrologist and she was like, hey, buddy, we're going to need to start to prep you for a kidney transplant. And knowing that at some point it was going to happen. Yeah, but still being skeptic, I'm like, I no. feel great, you know. Kind of like the heart I, thing. Kind of like the heart thing, but even worse because I still feel really good. Now, my normal might be different than somebody else's normal, but for me, I feel great. Yeah. Still racing BMX, still enjoying life, still working every day. And but she was like, "Hey, we want to get out in front of this because we don't want you to have to go on dialysis. Dialysis really taxes the heart, and it would not be good for me." Good, um, good. So I was like, okay, well, what do I need to do? And we started going through the workups and, and it got to the point where they were like, all right, we need to start looking at donor options. And this was, that was tough for me because I found it difficult to put out there that I needed a kidney. I've always been relatively self-sustaining. Um, yeah. And with the exception of my wife and my my family, my immediate family, I don't really go outside that circle for much. And I was like, well, my sister can donate or maybe my daughter can donate. And I I did not want to make that I'm in need of something post, you know. Yes. And me and Angie had words about it because I was like, well, I'll just wait. Yeah, my wife, Angie. And I was like, I'll just wait on. I'll just get a deceased donor kidney. And yeah. all the all the studies show that it's not the best for someone who needs a kidney. Okay. And it was really hard for me to sit down with my team and put the website together and put the ask out there. But um, once again, my friends, man, just showed up and showed out and Tons of people got tested. And one of my really good buddies who I met probably 25 years ago um, sent me a message. He's like, I'm getting tested. And then he sends me a message. My kit came and he's like, 
I think I'm going to be the one. And then he sends no me way. a message. No way. Yeah. And of course it takes time. And so many people uh, signed up to get tested that it was taking a long time for them to kind of, you know, test everyone. So it was basically a, a cheek swab where they go in and yes. you swab your cheek and they look at your antibodies and everything. And, and so he called me probably two weeks ago, called me at work. He said, hold on a second. And he clicks my wife in and he's like, guess what? I'm a match. And we were like, are you freaking kidding me? So he was excited. We were excited. He just went for more extensive blood work uh, yesterday. Uh, and okay. and now he's got one appointment left with his cardiologist. But if everything goes well, goes right, you know, we could be doing this as early as maybe February or March. Wow. Yeah. So the crazy part of this is when our common friend, shout out Rhiannon Hoeller, Yes. called me when she was on vacation with you guys. She was like, okay, first of all, he's an amazing guy and he's got insane stories and it's so great, blah, blah, blah. And then she was like, and by the way, we need to find him another kidney. And I was like, dude, <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on this. Like as if I'm the person that was going to be able to find that. And then, but I thought, well, maybe somebody listening, you know, I don't yeah. know. And then when she told me, I was like, literally, I think when you told her, she told me and she was so excited and yeah, so great. Yeah. Great and great. And then here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to come back on the podcast <laughs> and share about that journey because I think, I feel like this journey is a little bit different because you said that like, it's almost like you had to ask for help and receive at the same time. Yeah. The, 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 the heart situation was a bit different because it, I mean, both are in the hands of benevolence. Both are in the hands of people who want to help because I never met Eric, my donor. Yeah. But this guy decided probably at some point when he was renewing his driver's license and they asked, would you like to be an organ donor? He was like, sure, what the heck? You know, I'm not going to need it, which is what everybody says. And he checked the box. Right, totally. He checked the box. And, and I'll never forget the day that they came in my room and told me, you know, it was the, like I said, it was my birthday. It was the day before my birthday. And I was the youngest person on the unit. So I always would joke around with the nurses and the PCAs and they would come and hang out yeah. before their shift or after their shift. And I'd beg them for food. Stop. I'd be like, just sneak me some macaroni, you know, or my, all my friends that would show up would bring like burgers and my Stop buddies, it. my Stop. buddy, Ed, one of my best friends was like, dude, I don't feel right about bringing this. It's not good for your heart. I'm like, my heart is screwed, man. Bring me a burger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so when yeah. they all came into my room, Angie was on her way because she would come up from like Thursday to Sunday. And we were uh -huh. so ah, I totally forgot. We need like two hours because there's but a lot. But they had decided to give me a total artificial heart. All right. Which means okay. I was getting worse and they were like, we're going to take your heart out, put a fake heart in just to give you a little more time. And I was okay. like, whatever, wow. dude, let's just do it. So that next right. day right. they were, I was going to meet with the team to talk about the procedure. And I'm laying there, five or six nurses come in and they're like, we just want to wish you a happy birthday. I'm on the phone with Angie and I said, well, why don't you sing happy birthday? I put Angie on speakerphone and 
one of the doctors, uh, one of the fellows comes in and she's like, we have a surprise for you. And I'm, I swear to God, I'm thinking macaroni and cheese. And, and she tells me, she's like, we found you a heart. And I'm like, what? And sure enough, after the tears and the hugs and Angie's like, what happened? And I told her and she literally had to pull over. Like she was on her way. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, they're like, all right, we got to get ready. And so had to go through, you know, the routine of getting ready. And that was at eight o'clock on the 25th of February. At night? At night? And then at 1 a.m. on February 26th, I went in to the to the room and there's a bunch of people in there. And guess what they're playing? 80s music. Guess what comes on? Van Halen, Van Halen, baby. And I was like, we got this. Stop it. We got this. Did they know that you loved No, I didn't even say anything, but I was totally at peace at that point. I'm like, we're good. We got this. And yeah. Okay, listeners, what you didn't hear was that before we started talking, Don Eric was telling us that he loves Van Halen. And so anyway, (laughs) that's crazy. All right, we're, I, I mean, I want to talk to you for another two hours, but we're <laughs> out of time. So um, thank you for spending the time and moving this up in your schedule, making the time for us, and also for just being such an incredible human being for people to learn from. It's not me. I'm just, I always say God takes care of fools and babies. And I haven't been a baby in a long time, so he's just looking out for me. And that's just it. And it's my responsibility and my my charge to to tell my story and hopefully it'll move somebody in, in the right way. You know. So I the person that I interviewed right before you, I shared this quote with her because it reminded me of her. And I have to say it because it totally reminds me of you too. So listeners, I'm sorry you have to listen to this quote twice, but it is really good. Maybe you've been assigned to this mountain to show others it can move. Man, that's it. That hits. That hits. I, that might end up on my Instagram tonight. Yeah. I'll, I'll screenshot it and I'll send <laughs> it right. to you. Maybe you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can move. Thank, Thank you. you. You are so awesome. Happy New Year. I look forward to, to seeing you in person and reconnecting. And I'll definitely tell you part two whenever you're ready. I can't. You tell me when you're ready. Right. I want it. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great holiday. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 